hands make slight work and this is a big job producing this podcast, but I've got help and the Vancouver Island Works Project has been providing a great deal of help by creating for me a premium website, biwproject.com for a premium website for yourself. Don't go to just Wix or something like that where you bang it together. Everybody thinks they can do a DIY website and yeah, you can, but it's going to be missing so much stuff. If you want a K car, go get a K car. If you want a Lamborghini, you go to viwproject.com. Thank you, Manny Mandruziak, who I served with, who made this possible. Thank you for your support of Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast by providing us with a beautiful premium website. That website is operationtraumarecovery.org. Operationtraumarecovery.org is the website that they made for us. And viwproject.com is where you go to get one for yourself. Victor India Whiskey Project.com. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help or PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to trauma recovery is clear. Morgan is a part of our peer support group, a valued member of the peer support group, and Morgan happens to be intersex. And I had no idea what that is. And Morgan's fiance is a trans man, transgendered. So I couldn't be more thrilled because I'm going to be learning, learning, learning on this. And the thing is, if I'm ignorant, I know there's lots of other people out there that are ignorant too, and they just don't know stuff that they should know. And I'm absolutely fascinated to find out where this conversation goes. Morgan and Logan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's get going. Let's talk some science. Because uh, I, and I can really understand how hurtful it is when people are really adamant that there's only two genders. I can really understand how hurtful that is now that I'm understanding a little bit better about what's going on. And this science, so Morgan, I'm just stumbling here, but screw it. I'm going to keep going anyway. I don't have an editor. Uh, Morgan, tell me what intersex is. Intersex is being born with both genders in one of uh, hundreds of ways. Um, Just as a general idea, you can be intersexed uh, through physical uh, means, being that you could be uh, male and female on genitalia, or you could have a mixture of being uh, one gender below and but appear to be another gender above. There's also chromosome, which uh, you've heard of probably the Klinefelter syndrome. Yes. And that's the XXY chromosomes. And so you have the extra X in it. Um, There's also hormonal, uh, which is one of the areas I actually fit into. Whereas I'm uh, hormonally, I was predominantly female. And it turned out later in my life, I found out that I'm allergic to testosterone. And it had to be blocked. And... uh, for my health and uh and then uh there's there's at least more than 
uh, 200 different ways to be intersexed in general. And the way they've based it in the past is on the doctors would take a child and measure their genitals. And if it wasn't up to a certain standard, then they classified them as female. And if it went beyond a certain measurement, then they classified classified them as male. But the problem with that was that uh, that wasn't really their true physical gender. And uh, there have been cases in history where a woman had a, uh, a clitoris that was uh, over three inches long, and she was able to have sexual intercourse with other women. And also, uh, sometimes there's a mixture of having either both ovaries and testicles in a body or having one of each. And even though you may have the genitalia of one gender, it's how that developed, whether they developed as ovaries or testicles. Some testicles don't drop, some ovaries do. And it can become very confusing. And these aren't always noticed until they hit the teen years. And in the teen years, the the person may be not progressing as they should be as far as like for females, they may not have their periods. And then they find out that they were actually male and not female, even though they had what appeared to be a clitoris. And I know of one person who was born undetermined and the parents chose to raise them um, basically to be whatever they wanted to be. But they had genitalia, and they did eventually uh, go as male. But in their late years, in their 40s, they they started having pain when they were sitting down. And they went to the doctor, and the doctor said uh, that their vaginal opening was starting to come come out. In? Underneath the the phallus. Yeah, in their 40s. Good God. And it turned out that their the vaginal area had never opened up, and the skin was starting to open. And so they found out they had both the phallus as well as a vaginal opening. And so it can, it can be kind of hard to figure out, but when you have a child that's in doubt, uh, it used to be that they just determined right there at birth and they did surgery if it was needed and make that child one gender without waiting. Now, you were assigned male at birth. Yes. And at what point did you realize there's something a little bit different here? Probably around six, I started noticing. I, Early. I, there were things that were different about me. Okay. Um, and some of those were kind of minor things, but looking back, it was more obvious. Uh, things like I got along better with girls than I did boys. Mm-hmm. I was also very short. Uh, I was the smallest kid in my class, and uh, I tended to be a little weaker than boys. I couldn't throw like a boy. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't punch like a boy, but I tended to move more like a girl. Um, and growing up, my parents had a house part. Or well, my dad would play music at home all the time with friends. Yeah, and they were having a little party one night, and they did this thing where you put a chair up against a wall a folding chair and uh if you put your head against the wall uh and you try to pick it up and you're a guy you can't do it you can't pick it up and stand up 
but a woman can because of the way the body is built. And I went over and I picked the chair up with no problem. And uh, so my parents quit doing that party trick. (laughs) And uh, I didn't find out until after I came out about what I'd found out about myself. And my dad came back and apologized to me and told me that when I was really young, they, the doctors told him that it was best to raise me as a boy and to just lie and really push being a boy, that if they did that, I would be better. I would be better off. I wouldn't know and to just lie to me. And he thought that was the best bet because that was what the doctors told him. And doctors were gods. You didn't argue with them. Absolutely. And uh, my mom had wanted a boy, so she was happy to do that. And, uh, but, uh, growing up, there were all kinds of signs. Uh, one was I was babysitting and I had a child on my hip and I was making lunch for the kids and a nurse who was the mother of the children came over, told my mom that wasn't a, 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 a thing that boys could usually do that, that was more of a female trait to be able to do that and holding a kid on a hip and doing these other chores. Right. And a lot of people would make comments about the fact that as a, if I had been a woman, I'd have looked much prettier because I had big <laughs> eyelashes and uh, my face was more of a feminine type of face when I was young. Okay. And, uh, and then as well, when I was about 13, I started developing breasts and I went to my family doctor and asked him what was going on. And his reply was that I had a slight hormonal imbalance to play lots of sports, get my testosterone flowing, yeah, and that they would go away. And uh, how'd that work for you? Well, I guess it must have worked pretty good because I was only about a D or double D by the time I graduated high school. I imagine I must have been, I would have been a lot bigger at that time, oh <laughs> um, but it didn't really work. <laughs> so, yeah. and. Then I uh, I started having problems with uh, rectal bleeding uh, when I was 15, but it only happened about every five weeks. And uh, the first doctor didn't even look at me, just said, oh, it's just, uh, um, what do you call it again? Hemorrhoids. And, uh, but in my 40s, when I went in, uh, they did the that scope up and they they said there were no scars, no hemorrhoids. Everything's perfectly normal. But my whole life I've dealt with this happening every five to six weeks, which is the standard for a period. And everything correlated. We're still figuring that out even now. Uh, they're still saying so they there's can't. there's no semblance of a uterus in you? They can't find one right now, but okay. they still can't figure out the bleeding, and they're still trying to get that down but the fact that it's always been fairly steady was a uh, was one thing that kind of had them pausing about it now what had you want to join the army why'd uh, you do that well i did it to piss off my father who was air force <laughs> <laughs> that'll do it <laughs> and it didn't work but i figured i was going to show him up i needed a job i wanted to get into something and i wanted to be able to go to college and i yeah. didn't have the money and I figured, well, I didn't want to go Air Force because that was what he did. So I was yeah. going to do something different. And I went Army and uh, wasn't thinking very straight. And I needed to get in. So I signed up for an infantry unit, 
so I could get in right away. You were absolutely nuts. Oh, yeah, and lied to. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, after I got in, uh, my dad, uh, once I came back home for leave, told me he was actually proud of me before being in the Army because it was too much exercise. That's why he chose the Air Force. <laughs> um, and for John, that's probably the best part of it is that he didn't have to work as hard. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but with it uh, came the uh, problems of I'm in an infantry unit, and it ended up not being just a regular infantry unit. I went through basic AIT and into uh, my unit all with the same people. So a lot of those people were with me the whole time. And what happened was um, during the showering, people noticed that I didn't really seem to have a, a penis. And they also noticed that I had quite a bit of cleavage for a guy. Yeah. And that led to a lot of rumors, a lot of uh, talking behind my back and things like that. And, uh, and then when I got to my unit, they did a what they called a random call out of names for screening for possible... Um, uh, hormone uh, use for enhancement. And uh, I was the only one out of my company that got called out. So, so they called, so they, they, they used the cloak of a steroid check. Yes. Um, it's just so you didn't feel singled out or they didn't have any legal backlash. Right. And when that came back, uh, I noticed that all my hormones were marked on the female side and not on the male side. And I asked my doctor why this was happening. And my army doctor at the time said it didn't mean anything not to bring it up again. And that was that. I was ignorant and didn't know at the time that what he was referring to was the don't ask, don't tell policy. Okay. And so they knew more than I did about myself. Oh, just for the audience, uh, you're an American veteran. I That's forgot, correct. I forgot to add that in. Yes. and uh, Y'all. <laughs> eh? Um, <laughs> but uh, the thing was, is that we were, a, uh, we were pathfinders. And so we were a step sideways, I would say, from being a ranger. So we were first in, last out for frontline action. But we were also assigned a specific uh, duty of dying place where we were guarding the Berlin wall in Germany. And, uh, so what ended up happening is after getting this test done and everything, um, they just kind of moved me into my own personal room. And even though I wasn't of high enough rank, I ended up with a, a single person room to myself. So it was obviously quite blatant that you were physically different. Yes. And yet they kept you in a tier two unit. Yes, and they that, and they that's, kept. That's, they, that's bizarre. The biggest problem was they couldn't move me anywhere. Okay. The ground rules are once you go into infantry, you can't go anywhere. So it was more of a ride me out and go from there. Uh, just serve my time. Showers. Uh, I, one of the guys that I was in the unit with, uh, eventually told me that what they had been doing was they were giving me chores to do a lot of times and that was when all the guys went and showered and and then when i was showering they had somebody going down to the 
to the uh, latrines, and they wouldn't let anybody go into the showers when I was in there, so that I was showering by myself all the time. Now, that must have created a sense of isolation, but wasn't that also somewhat for safety? Yes, it was, and I didn't know what was going on, so they were keeping me ignorant of everything. It almost seems like they were kind of decent to you in a way. In a way, they were. Now, there was a couple of guys who could be real jerks. And of course, I I had one guy one time actually tell me, it, we, we were up in the hallway, and he turned around and looked at me and says, blow me. And I got down on my <laughs> knees, and I said, okay. And he starts to unbutton his pants, and I said, you know, I can always brush my teeth afterwards, but you can't grow a new one. And I snapped my teeth. So he turned around and left me alone. And <laughs> he didn't come around me again after that. And, uh, but I also had a couple of people who had it in for me that didn't really want me there. Yeah. And I ended up getting transferred into a support battalion for my company because I was, it was under the fact that I'd did, done did so much Did you have any work. good advocates, though, Morgan? Did I you, did. Did you have a couple, a couple of the guys that, were, that had your back? I found that out afterwards. Uh, I did. So you had advocates. They were silent advocates. They weren't just silent, but when I got moved in, because I wasn't really having problems until I got moved to headquarters. Yeah. And the corporal and a specialist who was of the same rank as me were in the um, in the uh, headquarters uh, section of our company. And they started writing up reports on me. Uh falsifying reports saying that I was just, I was derelict in how I did my job. Oh, they're just trying to uh, create a case to kick you out. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. they would, they would berate me and they'd go into the latrines when I was down there getting ready for the day. And they would tell me I wasn't doing enough uh, to get cleaned up. And they would call me stupid and they would, uh, and they would sometimes push me around and hit me and stuff. And, I think one of the worst was when I was uh, I was driving the two and a half ton, and I just finished up doing my pre trip, and they came over and they started arguing about my pre trip, which was done correctly, but they they didn't want it to go that way, and uh, the corporal actually grabbed me from the cab and yanked me out onto the ground and was going to punch me, and then he stopped short of punching me, so they started kicking me and then making me do. Uh, exercises as discipline for not doing the job to their standards and when we did our trip back uh had an incident where a german car pulled right in front of me on the autobahn and slammed on his brakes and i literally stood up on the brakes with the lieutenant right beside me and apparently i did damage to the truck because even though i didn't hit him when we got back into the base, uh, my U-joint fell out. Oh, jeez. And they wrote me up for it, even though the mechanic had said that uh, the U-joint was probably from the force of trying to brake when I had the trailer on it and was slamming the brakes to keep from rear-ending a car that shouldn't have pulled in front of me. Oh, sounds like you had a long three years. Yes, it was. And I'd say the the length of it, that that six to eight months that I spent with the headquarters uh, platoon felt like six years rather than part of the three. Now, there's a big, big, big part of the Army, and especially infantry, and especially Tier 1 and 2 infantry, uh, where it's it's about 
manliness and being a man and masculinity and and that is a big part of the identity how did you navigate like how did that feel for you and what did you feel like well i felt like i was doing the job as a matter of fact i had done better than some of the guys in my unit um i ended up being many times i was either carrying a 60 or i was carrying an m249 or as you guys call an m4 and uh, sometimes I had a 203 or M16, but I mostly kept up with the heavier stuff. Yeah. And I was short, I was compact, and I could handle all the extra weight, which I didn't realize was damaging my back. I also was a, a communications soldier, so I would sometimes carry a Prick 77 as well as carry a 60 cal yeah. at the same time. And... um. And I held my own on it, and a lot of the guys respected me for that ability. Um, but there were a few who were insulted by it because of the fact that I was this really small person, and I was still kicking butt when we did marches. How tall are you, Morgan? Five four. Five four. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. I don't even remember anybody that was five four when I was a grunt. <laughs> yeah, you and know. so yeah, we we went through all the things. The only problems I had were. Uh, zip line, I couldn't hit the mound when we were coming to it because my legs were too short. So I had to just drop and roll. <laughs> and uh, during a river crossing, I almost drowned because the water tried to sweep me away because I was too small. Yeah. Um, and um, I, while we were climbing the side of a cliff, I got stuck in the middle because I was too short to reach the uh, grips. And so they had to send somebody up underneath me to hook up to my uh, belt and pull me back up the rest of the way. But all these years later, have there been any other females that have um, uh, made it to that unit or, or an equivalent unit like the Rangers? Yes, there is. There's a female soldier and I can't remember her name right now. Recently graduated as a Ranger. You did it first. Uh, But she did it as a full female first (laughs) and uh, got recognized for it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. For me, it was uh, keeping quiet because they didn't want to admit they screwed up and yeah. and missed that I was female when they put me in. And uh, so I was a mistake. But what what blew up was when they the ones that wanted me out uh, filed charges that I was inept and that I was mentally incompetent. And they sent me to a psychiatrist, and the major that was the psychiatrist uh, gave me strict orders that I needed to do um, some training on stress management, and that I had to attend her course. When I went back, I told my first sergeant what she had said, and that it was an order. And the first sergeant, I I knew not to go over anybody's head about any problems I was having, so I'd kept quiet. And I, and when I told the first sergeant, he told me he was going to give me my stress management. I wasn't going to attend a course. And I told him that it was the orders of a major, and he said it didn't matter. He was my first sergeant. So the next day, instead of going to the course, I was out painting rocks in front of our headquarters company building. And how did that work? Did it fix you? No, not really. I just came really good at painting rocks two different colors. Um, <laughs> our, and, our sister regiment, the Royal Canadian Regiment, uh, is well known for rock painting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, major came by because I didn't show up. 
and she started chewing me out in front of the headquarters building. And I informed her of the fact that the what my first sergeant had said and that I had told him what she had said. So she marched straight in and started chewing out my CO, who uh, was a 82nd Airborne captain, and uh, which I knew somebody was going to catch it because if he got chewed out, somebody else had to go. Yeah. Because you don't chew out a ranger captain. <laughs> and uh, But he couldn't do anything with the major since she outranked him. And after about 15 minutes and after a good five or six minutes of her screaming, she came out and she just looked at me, straightened up her uniform and said, it's been resolved. And uh, she goes, you don't need to come to my stress courses. And she walked away. And I'm sitting there thinking I'm, I'm done, that my career is over. Do no fault of your own. Yeah. And then uh, my CEO came out and he told me to go back to the barracks to my room and await uh, further instructions. And uh, so I went back pretty much shaking like a leaf and almost in tears because I figured I was done and they were, they were getting me out and I was going to have a bad record for no fault of my own. And I'm waiting there. And then my old squad leader came ba- came in and he had his hand, he had a big stack of papers for the last six to eight months of me being in the headquarters. And he turned to me and he said, um, this is all the reports about your conductivity as a soldier during the last while. And he said, and this is what it means. And he shredded them right there in front of me and threw them in the trash can and lit it on fire and said, as far as we're concerned, he said, this isn't you. And he said, we're going back to what you were when you were in my unit. And he said, so he said, I was to go back and uh, become the track commander for the squad. And that shocked the hell out of me. You got promoted out of it. Uh, Kind of a promotion, but I was still a specialist. But that's where my career ended was with that. And in the process, I had faced some medical issues because I busted up my feet doing the Nine Megan March in Holland. And then I also ended up, they found I had bone spurs. Those suck. Yeah. And then they also, I passed out on a patrol and they found out I had glaucoma. And that the eye pressure was really high at the time. Yeah. So they said between, they said the biggest thing was the uh, feet. They said I couldn't carry a backpack anymore. I couldn't carry weight on my back because of my feet. Morgan, when did you realize that from your experiences that you were injured with PTSD? That wasn't until about 2014. That it it came into occurrence. So you I, went a good seventeen, eighteen years without diagnosis. Yes, and I, when it happened, uh, it was like they poked a hole in a dam and it started to leak, and I started to, I had forgotten so many things that had happened to me, in the military and stuff, and I just left it because I figured, you know, no big deal. I just didn't remember anything. It's a really good example, Morgan, of how you do not need to be deployed to be injured with an OSI, an operational stress injury. Um, You don't need to be deployed for that. 
It, it can happen in service, in training, because there's such a power differential there that mm-hmm. uh, how you're treated is so far and above what could possibly happen in a civilian world. And yes. uh, that because that power differential is so great and you can't do jack squat about it other than survive. Right. And there were so many so-called training accidents that occurred and I'd forgotten most of them. And when they started poking and they broke the dam open, the first question was, have you ever been sexually assaulted? And I said, no. And then all of a sudden it just occurred to me that I'd been beaten in my regular unit by an NCO. And I said I was physically assaulted. And then that evening when I went home, I started having night terrors and I was reliving things that had happened to me in the army. And it was like all of a sudden the dam just broke. And I started getting back memories of things that I had totally forgotten that scared the hell out of me. And I lost control. And I had so many stressors going on that uh, I spent the next couple of years pretty much in and out of the VA hospital in the psych ward getting treatment to try and help me out and to get control of my life again. I had gone to extreme self-harm and uh, suicidal thoughts and attempts and was having a hard time dealing with all the emotions and all the uh, memories and fears that came flooding back to me. That is one hell of a hard road, Morgan, and I'm so sorry that you've had to deal with it at such a deep and powerful level. Now, what, uh, what brought you up to Canada? I had met a Canadian girl when I was in Germany, and mm-hmm. we ended up marrying. Okay. And then we went back to the States for a short while, but she had jumped off a small ledge, probably no higher than this table, and she broke both of her ankles. Oh, dear. And they charged us $25,000 to incorrectly uh, cast her feet. And the VA hospital looked at it, cut the casts off, and gave her air casts for free. But uh, we decided maybe if we were ever going to have children or anything, we would have to come to Canada because we couldn't afford the health care in the States. Mm-hmm. And we'd only been there for a few months. So we moved up here in uh, around probably December of 1990 to Canada. Uh, to Edmonton, where she had been from, and we lived up. We'd lived in Canada since, and uh, so that was just less than a year after I got out of the military, and uh, so I stayed here in Canada and managed to have a family and uh, was living my life fairly normal until uh, I started having medical issues. And I was about 42, and I went in. And the first doctor I went to, uh, he did a hormone test, but he just said, well, your testosterone's way too low. And he said I was around maybe five or six points out of what should have been around 60 for male testosterone. And that's all he looked at. And he put me on uh, testosterone orally. And he was having me take about 60 milligrams a day, oral, 
And all it did was it made me confused, more angry, started giving me more hair in areas that I didn't have. And, uh, and I started bleeding and I found out it was my, uh, that I went to another doctor because I just felt this guy wasn't doing the, the job right. And the other doctor got me off the testosterone right away. He checked my hormones then and he checked them six months after. And then he saw me and it turned out that, uh, the testosterone was literally tearing up my insides as well as my mind. Now, will it do that to a, um, uh, at birth woman? It can, you got to take it a certain way. You got to, you got to take the certain type of, uh, hormone, uh, or, or testosterone. And what he was giving me was not effective at all because it, the oral doesn't really even do anything. But how long have you been living as a woman now? I have been living as a woman since I was 42. Okay. So about 11 years now. Okay. And uh, when I saw the new doctor, after they'd done the test, he showed me that while I was on the testosterone, I I only made it to about 10 points and was 60 milligrams a day. He said he would have expected me to be much higher, at least 25 or 30. Yeah. And it didn't hardly rise. Well, you can always sell them to somebody at a gym. <laughs> what they did find was that my estrogen levels were about 136. And for a woman, uh, it should be no more than 70, 75 at the most. Yeah. So what I was doing was I was running pregnant and uh, just off of testosterone. And uh, so they blocked the testosterone in my body. My white blood cell count was really high as well because my body was fighting the testosterone and trying to convert it to estrogen. How did you find, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to jump forward just a little bit here. No, go ahead. Um, uh, How did you find the military peer support group? Uh, The one that I'm in now, I found uh, because I went to a, the veterans food bank. Okay. And I asked uh, if there was anybody that might be able to help me with my ongoing issues with PTSD because I knew that I still, even though I'm doing better, that I still had a long road of recovery. And they they referred me to Matthew Miller. And Oh, wonderful. And Matthew started working with me, and he introduced me to John. And John Sr., uh, and... Then from there, I just started getting more involved with the peer support, and I found it very helpful, and uh, it's really made a difference for me. So what is it about the peer support that, like, what is it about that group that gives you comfort? Uh, They know everything about me, no judgment, and uh, they understand the trauma, and they don't treat me any different than somebody who may have served a full 40 or 30 years in service, whereas mm-hmm. I only got three. And uh, and we can joke and have fun together, but we can also be serious, and they listen. And I, I like being able to be a part of that group because there are others who are having problems, and sometimes I'm able to talk to them because I understand what they're going through, and I listen to them. And I would say... One of the big things has been that uh, with the group and being able to participate with them, it's gotten me out of the house more and 
feeling more confident with myself and I've met some really good people who uh from the military from Canada that are uh, just they're really nice they're they're very supportive peer support is a few different things uh, on one hand it's a social it's a safe place to connect socially mm-hmm. with like-minded people that have with similar experience on the other hand the way that we do it is the psych ed piece so we share life lesson tools and resources have there been any of those tools and resources that you have found really helpful or that stand out for you the dbt manual um very helpful uh it's helped me to understand myself more and to understand so dbt is dialectic behavior therapy that's correct okay and uh and through it there have been Areas that seem to cross over into so many different other uh, things for helping people out. Like, uh, for instance, um, I I like the chain reaction chart, which helps me to prepare when I know I'm going to be in a tough situation. Um, also, the pyramid chart, which helps me to understand myself. Um, and then the things that John's offered, too, like the fire triangle, mm-hmm. halt. All those, all those little things help you to uh, start learning how to control yourself, to see what you're doing, and to see uh, what it is that affects you, what triggers you, and uh, and how to control it better through time and ongoing practice, meditation, um, and talking it out. Because uh, when I first after I first blew up, I couldn't even talk about the incident with the deuce and half right. without falling apart and starting to cut myself up with my nails. Now, through peer support, you found out about the podcast that you were now a guest on. Yes. Operation Tango Romeo. Now, it's tell me about what your experience has been like with this podcast and maybe compare it a little bit with the um, peer support group that you've been attending. Well, with the Tango Romeo, it brings a lot of insights to the uh, uh, issues that people are facing uh, and understanding of dealing with the PTSD and trauma that we deal with. And it's opened my eyes to so many other areas like uh, our, what other people have had to go through because I've, for the longest time, I just saw my side of it where I just knew what I was going through. Right. But by listening to your podcast, I've I've learned so much more about the PTSD, the trauma that others go through, and how it's there's so many ways to be traumatized in the military or even in the first responders, mm-hmm. and uh, and then through that, by understanding these different things, we I can also gain insight from things that you've talked about for helping people, and uh, it's just. I'm still listening. I'm on like, it takes me a time, but I've listened to, I think I listened to your first podcast about five times and just getting started. And then from there, I've been listening to, I'm up to about the fifth one at the moment, but every day I just keep listening, or not every day, but every chance I get, I, I will listen to the podcasts and I just find it really intriguing. It's almost like having another session without uh, but without all the other people around, more like a private session to listen to it. 
and it's safe and it's at your it own is. pace and when you can yeah. you can do it while you're driving yeah now we have sitting here like a bump on a log poor logan that i haven't <laughs> asked a single question because morgan is just yappy yappy <laughs> so i can't nobody That's can get okay. a word in edgewise of course i'm kidding that <laughs> um uh, morgan's been doing a wonderful job of storytelling and sharing um, uh, Logan, have you noticed a difference in Morgan, uh, since she's been attending peer support and listening to Tango Romeo? Yes. A little closer to the microphone there. Um, <laughs> you're not going to give me the one word answers, are you? <laughs> are you going to do that to me, Logan? No, Logan. she's a lot, she's a lot, uh, calmer. Okay. Um, a lot easier to reason with, um, when she broached the idea of her doing this, I would, you know, whatever that can help you, I'm all for. Um, and if I can help you to get there, that's fine too. Has Logan been, or has um, Morgan been sharing any of the lessons that she's learned from peer support with you? Some, but then I, I sort of figure it this way. Um, give her some privacy, and if she feels that she can share, then that's fine too. But the thing is, for the longest time, it was just me trying to help her out. Yeah. And I figured that... Uh, the more the merrier. <laughs> Many hands makes light work. Yeah, that too. <laughs> well, especially when we deal with like the uh, MST group that we now have for the women. Yeah. Uh, I can't really talk about that because of the fact that I don't want to uh, out anybody who may be in the group. Oh, of course, it's a super and, private group. And, and the same with the peer support. I don't out anybody in there, mm-hmm. but I do sometimes talk about subjects that we've covered and and then tell them about my own experiences or feelings. And you might want to tune into about two episodes ago, so I don't know if it was 65 or 66, somewhere around there. Um, I had a doctor from Florida who specialized in MST, military sexual trauma, and we did an episode on that. So you might be interested in giving that a listen. Okay. Yeah, as well. But um, Morgan, Logan, thank both of you so much for being here today. We're at the 41-minute mark, and I think we've, we've got a lot there. We've got a lot there. Thank you for both for having the courage to to come here and the kindness to generosity of sharing your time and sharing your story. Of course, Logan didn't share any story really, but uh, but he's here in a supportive role. Thank you both. It's been a privilege and an honor. Thank you. You enjoyed being here. You are listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help or PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to trauma recovery is clear.